hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Health Science Podcast. I am your host, Devin Box. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion. The music, as always, brought to you by the talented Chase Drew. You can find him on all of your favorite streaming services. My co-host, Zach, will not be here today, but not to worry. If you want to go hear him, head over to the Fiscal Frisk podcast, new episodes every Thursday morning. Now, today I have a very very special guest with me. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Orlando Rojas from the University of British Columbia. Dr. Rojas is the Canada Excellence Chair and uh, Research Chair in Bioproducts. He is the Scientific Director of the Bioproducts Institute and is the Director of the Pulp and Paper Center. Dr. Rojas is an expert in the fields of chemical and material engineering. Today, Dr. Rojas uh, works towards supporting global sustainable development through research on the fundamental and utilization aspects of renewable resources, including some fancy words, lignocellulose, proteins, and other biopolymers. His research aims to discover competitive alternatives for fossil-based materials. So, Dr. Rojas, thank you so much for joining us on the Health Science Podcast. Thank you, David. My pleasure to be here. Happy to join you and your audience. Now, before we get off and running, I want to give our listeners just a little bit of context to help them follow along with our conversation. Now, you and I have chatted prior to recording this, and for the listeners who may be wondering, why is a materials engineer talking on the Health Science Podcast? And it's a valid point. However, in talking with Dr. Rojas, he opened my eyes to the many different ways um, that the development of bioproducts could be impacting uh, your health right now and in the future. And these range from creating biomedical materials for surgical implants to the use of cellulose films in sterilization processes. So that being said, there are a variety of conversations that Dr. Rojas and I can have regarding his work, but we wanted to start off kind of general um, and give you guys some really interesting information on a current project uh, that Dr. Rojas and his team are working on, um, and that is the production of medical masks using locally sourced sustainable materials, which is, of course, very important given the current COVID-19 pandemic. But before we get into that, um, I just have a series of questions that I think will will help kind of guide our conversation in a way that our, our listeners can follow along. So how does that sound? Excellent. That sounds like a very good plan. So first off, let's just uh, let's tell the listeners who you are. How did, how did we get here? Yeah, so yeah, I'm a professor in UBC in the departments of uh, chemical and biological engineering, but also with uh, appointments in chemistry and uh, wood science. Um, before coming to Canada, I was a professor in uh, Finland in Alto University. And um, as you may guess, uh, Finland together with Sweden and uh, several other countries in the uh, boreal belt uh, have a really great um, culture related to the forest resource. So that's the connection between the uh, Finland and Canada in a way. And that's what I'm doing here now in Vancouver, uh, directing the Bioproducts Institute. And maybe we can talk more details uh, as we go along. But uh, yeah, uh, I have been here for uh, a year uh, during the pandemic pretty much. <laughs> Before coming, uh, I was in Finland and very active uh, working the area. So, yeah. 
Excellent. And if, if people go onto the website and, and check out your information, you've got a lot of different credentials from different schools all over the globe. So what was kind of, what got you started um, and, and kind of curious in this field of research and, and what kind of guided you toward um, the, the field that you work in now? Yeah, so my career uh, was initiated in areas of uh, polymer chemistry. And of course, uh, when I was uh, younger, uh, I was looking into transformation of uh, materials, energy, and uh, that's pretty much uh, what we look into, chemistry. But then later on, I I realized that it's important for us uh, as a scientist to, to also look for an impact of what we do. And uh, I think there is no better example of creating impact using biology in chemistry. The one that we find in plants and how to use uh, those uh, bioresources as a solution to many of the materials needs that uh, we have around us. So my motivation comes in in that direction, right? Uh, Looking into how we could um, uh, use, uh, synergize uh, uh, concepts that are very close to, again, physics, uh, biology, chemistry, to put it to work and to make a better environment and a better society. Fantastic. Now, that's a good lead into the next kind of set of questions I have, here. So the one thing that I'm curious about, and, and maybe many of our listeners are, is just how many things in our daily lives are made from non-renewable sources. Um, and I believe many of them are either petroleum or oil-based products. So if we could start out by giving the listeners kind of a background on what types of common single-use plastics or things they might be using now and contrast that with some of the biodegradable counterparts that researchers like yourself are developing. Right. So if uh, if you look around yourself and uh, in your room, uh, you will realize that around you there are many materials that are uh, based on uh, fossil resources, uh, essentially from, from uh, petroleum-based materials, plastics, etc. Think about uh, the, the places where we live, uh, our houses, the, the, the construction materials that we use. Uh, these are usually non-renewable. Of course, there are exceptions, and they are becoming more and more popular. Um, if we look into the vehicles, the cars that we use, most of the materials uh, are based on non-renewable resources. The gasoline or the energy that we use, uh, the transport. Transport fuels are usually non-renewable. Uh, what we use as, uh, you know, our dresses, our, our wearables, usually also non-renewable from plastics like polyester. Uh, if we think about the current pandemic, the face masks that we use are derived from or are produced from uh, polypropylene, another example of a non-renewable. So they are really pretty uh, common around us, and uh, they are very useful because, of course, they are uh, relatively economical, easy to uh, transform, and, and therefore, after the Industrial Revolution, of course, we developed an appetite for uh, using materials that are easily accessible uh, from, from oil resources, and, of course, we got used to those. And this is how our society has developed to, to a large extent. But now I think we are confronted to, with a, a paradigm in, in the area of uh, the, the materials that we use, uh, uh, materials paradigm shift. And 
we should start to think about uh, maybe replacing several of those non-renewable materials that we see around us. They are non-sustainable, and uh, I think there are many solutions that are available. Now, there are some things that I've seen in my daily life. I know there's a lot of shopping outlets have switched to using paper bags. We could even get paper straws now, which was kind of a big thing. Um, what are some of the more common things that people would run into, um, like those examples um, that are kind of shifting, seeing that be more biodegradable uh, or from more biodegradable uh, materials? Right. So one that is very persistent is uh, cigarette butts, the cigarette filters that we see around us. It's very small, but nevertheless, uh, super important as far as materials that are non-biodegradable. Uh, plastic uh, bottles, uh, uh, liquid containers, uh, bottle caps, food wrappers, uh, the grocery bags that you mentioned, plastic lids, uh, straws, really they are all over the place. and and. Uh, coming now, what we see today, where packaging materials are becoming so popular, of course, takeaway containers, uh, they are usually made from uh, single-use plastic, plastic materials that are really uh, a problem, right? Um, so these are very typical. And um, um, poly foam polyester in packaging materials uh, are other examples, right? The, the, the cups that we use, the diapers, uh, these are all really so, so uh pervasive and common. And, and when it comes to the single-use uh, plastics, it's important for us to examine uh, how long we use those plastics. And, and it is known that the average time that we use a plastic is around 12 minutes. So we use these uh, materials for a very short time, but once they go to, uh, to the um, uh, disposal uh, chain, then disposal chains, then we realize that the life expectancy of those materials in the landfill, for example, can, can uh, measure to the thousands of years. So this is a really major problem. And, and today we know uh, more than 150 uh, uh, million tons of plastics are in the oceans. And you probably have heard already about the issue of the microplastics. So this is really creating a, a large uh, problem to, to all of us and uh, environmental pressure that we need to really uh, tackle uh, very seriously. And those mic microplastics, is, I've, I've, I'm familiar with them, but for the listeners, you, you had said that this is type of small plastic particles or materials that they'll find in, say, the bodies of fish. Does that actually get incorporated into the the I guess, fish or, you know, animals kind of as they, they grow, or is that just from them kind of digesting that um, in their environment? Uh, yeah, so they, they are bio-persistent, meaning that uh, they are not going to be digested by organisms. Uh, so they go into the food chain, and then they are, uh, of course, uh, permanent in, in that cycle. So this really creates a problem. And, and these are particles that, that are very, very small. And because of that, therefore, it's difficult to see, to classify, to measure, um, to standardize. So there are a, a number of uh, different challenges as far as the characterization. But we're talking here about very small particles. But because of the processes and all the phenomena that they are exposed to, friction, erosion, they become smaller and smaller in size, but they're still very persistent. And um, that's what is called, again, microparticles or, or microplastics. Uh, and usually they are in the, the so-called colloidal size, so in the micron uh, range of sizes. 
Um, if we compare those with uh, microparticles that are generated from other sources, like uh, those that are um, based on cotton or, or cellulosic materials, they can also produce those uh, small particles, for, in, for instance, during laundry uh, operations and, and uh, washing of our clothes. Uh, but uh, they are rapidly hydrolyzed, digested, degraded in the environment. So they, they are then, um, they disappear. That's a differentiation between what uh, we know as a plastic with a material that is plant-based from the point of view of the uh, microplastic issue, right? So quite, quite different uh, situations. Now, so we've brought up some different examples here. Now let's bring this back to kind of the health side. So for the average person listening, how can some of these single-use plastics or non-renewable materials um, negatively impact our lives either now or in the future? What ways are we seeing that? Well, in the, in the you know, grand scheme of things, of course, the, the first thing that we need to realize is the environmental impact, right? So first, the quality of uh, the water that we use. Uh, also, as we said, the food chain and the food that we eat. And of course, this uh, value accumulation, those issues that uh, we have mentioned earlier, they will end up in, in, in our bodies, essentially, right? Directly or indirectly. But from, from the point of view of the generation of waste, uh, and uh, there is a major issue, litter. Um, so this is very well known. And, and the fact that we use uh, plastics and, you know, they're really great materials, but only about 2% uh, are really recycled at the end, and, and most of it will go to, to the environment, uh, landfill or to the ocean. So, um, yeah, this is really, I would say, an environmental, uh, big environmental pressure. That will be the main thing, and that indirectly will uh, affect the quality of our life. Now, as kind of a funny side question is, I have heard online that some of the plastic water bottles that you just would, would pick up the the bottles they recommend that you don't drink out of them if they've been in a hot car for a certain amount of time. Is there truth to that? And what what is kind of maybe the science behind that? Does is there particles of of plastic that, depending on the temperature, can actually get into the water and and be ingested by us? Yeah. So in 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 in, in the injection, molding, uh, thermoforming of many of those polymers, there are additives that are used. Plasticizers, for example, and, and these, are, these are materials that are uh, um, lower molecular weight. And therefore, with temperature, with heating, they can be released in a different manner with, uh, you know, substances in different sizes that can really be a problem. Right? And, and this is a, a, an issue that is already well known. Some, some of those small molecules, like plasticizers, uh, can be a problem. So there is, uh, there is truth to this. Uh, and of course, that depends very much on, on the quality, the formulation of the material, the material itself. But, but I guess uh, that, that, that also can be an issue. Not only the polymers that, uh, that we use in, for instance, plastics that uh, we, we, we use in our liquid containers, et cetera, but also the additives that go into those uh, materials, right? And, and this can, they can be leached out with time. Now, is, is one of the more popular additives BPA? Because I've seen a lot of bottles now where you can buy like the reusable ones, like a, a protein shaker. Um, they say BPA-free. Is that one of those additives that, that have had toxic effects potentially? 
that would be an example, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure there are many more that uh, we're not aware of. And uh, you know, eventually, we as we learn more and more, then things uh, come up, and, and then we realize that many of the additives that we thought were safe may not be. And, and this is uh, an ongoing issue, right? And again, uh, during the processing, uh, many often times, uh, many different uh, materials, precursors, additives are used, and these are really a major concern. Now, let's contrast some of these impacts to that of the renewable materials that you work with. So what type of goals are being set by researchers like yourself? And if those goals are realized, what types of changes or impacts might you see? Right. So, so basic concept here is to look into the future um, bioeconomy, circular bioeconomy, where we really use the, what is available around us in a in a safe environment, where we use local resources, resources that may be regenerative, renewable, sustainable, that can be recycled. And that can be also biodegradable. And all of these features bring a, a positive environmental impact that is in contrast with uh, the materials that we just uh, discussed. And an example of those resources, uh, for instance, are, are plants, trees. From trees, we can really harvest some of the solutions to those uh, material needs. And, and one of those uh, materials that is uh, found in the fibers that uh, um, that it is in the trees is a cellulosic. The cellulosic polymer is an amazing polymer. It's the most abundant polymer in the biosphere. And then here we are thinking about this opportunity about using cellulose as a precursor for many of those uh, um, uh, products that, that we talked earlier. And, and cellulosic, cellulosic fibers are found, for instance, in paper, uh, tissue paper, copy paper, cardboard, right? So they are very common. And we don't realize it, but the potential of cellulose is really very, very large. Uh, there are many opportunities beyond typical paper products. So this is what we're talking about. Using cellulose from trees, from biomass, in a circular bioeconomy that also in, includes, involves uh, agricultural uh, uh, sources, right? So if we think about agricultural waste, there is a huge opportunity also in, in, in those resources that are very rich in cellulosic material. And, and this is very clear, um, uh, an opportunity uh, coming up in the future, uh, the fact that uh, for us as consumers, we're really looking into recycling more, we're paying more attention to eco-friendly products, we're really looking more into sustainable and recognize the environment as being extremely important. And we also have a stronger connection with uh, our uh, communities. And, and all of these stick to the fact that uh, we should take a look at uh, using the available resources in, in places like in the forest in, that are so abundant in, in Canada, right? And uh, I think this is uh, very important for us to ensure the uh, future sustainable society that, that we dream of. Now, to, to follow up with that question, um, I want to kind of highlight the environment again. Now, just because something is renewable doesn't mean it's unlimited. And of course, like you were saying there, much of the work that you do involves paper that comes from trees. What type of changes potentially in, in Canada and kind of industry um, might we see to effectively produce trees um, you know, in the necessary amounts without depleting resources? 
Right. So we said before, uh, trees, plants are regenerative, renewable. And this is very clearly seen in, in, in the case of uh, uh, the right forest management, for instance, right? in, the, in the case of the forest resource, where um, forest produce companies uh, plant trees in a, a, a faster rate that, they, that they, they use. To give an example of a Finnish company that, that I know, uh, they they plant 100 seedlings per minute, and that that amounts to 50 million trees per year. That makes the amount of uh, available uh, biomass to uh, continuously grow uh, with time. So the biomass that is available for us to use is really growing. I'm talking here about plantations, certified plantations. So of course there is a there is a limit to the amount of trees that we can use. Uh, but I think uh, if we think about the uh, sustainable and, and um, uh, management of, of the forest resource, I think uh, there is a big opportunity. It's not going to solve all the problems and replace all materials, but will be one of the important components in this circular bioeconomy that, that we just uh, talked about. And in that process, you can also think about uh, those plants, trees, as they grow, as a uh, CO2 sinks as a way for us to sequester carbon. So these are all really very important components. And, and usually we think about uh, forest products as being bad because we use trees. But reality is that uh, the more trees we use uh, during that growing uh, process of trees, uh, we are sinking uh, carbon. In that process, we use solar energy. We use water and air, CO2 to transform in a biosynthesis process those elements into a carbohydrate uh, becoming cellulose that is a polymer, and that polymer is the precursor for all the materials that, that we can talk about. Now, is cellulose the one that makes up the, the cell walls? It's been a while since I've done kind of biology and, and cell stuff. Is, is that the, the polymer in, uh, in cell walls? That's right. So in trees, we have fibers. In the fibers, we have a open space, the lumen, and the cell wall makes uh, what is uh, surrounding that open space. And uh, that cell wall is uh, composed of uh, the cellulose polymer, chains of uh, this uh, homopolymer that is very nicely assembled in a hierarchical, multi-scale structure. That makes the fibers in trees that are roughly uh, in the millimeter scale in, in length. But if we look into the deconstruction, we can unravel uh, those uh, fibers or, or the cell wall of the fibers, and we find a smaller structures that are called fibrils, cellulose fibrils, micro and nano fibrils. So uh, those materials, uh, we know how to uh, fractionate, how to isolate. And now we're talking about macroscopic fibers, micro and nanoscopic uh, uh, fibers. And, and, and that, that brings the, the concept of the nanotechnology. So nowadays it has become very popular, the use of uh, nanotechnology in uh, the utilization of, of uh, the uh, fiber resource. And this is one of the pillars of the future bioeconomy. There are many of those. Uh, and uh, nanotechnology is one of those. Digitalization, artificial intelligence, these are also extremely important in the future. 
And, and one of those, again, is uh, nanotechnology. And nowadays here, we, we have a lot of uh, research going on in the area of cellular nanotechnology, just to put an example. Now, in that uh, cell world that we just discussed, uh, cellulose is, is, a, is the main component, but there are many other components. And one of those is uh, hemicellulose or, or heteropolysaccharides that are uh, uh, amorphous um, carbohydrates. And then we have also a polyaromatic uh, molecule that is uh, called uh, lignin. And all of these molecules can be used. So what we want to do is to use every single molecule in a tree uh, to, to propose sustainable solutions to our material needs, uh, again, in a renewable manner. And I think this is very important because we're contributing to the full carbon cycle. Now, I want to get onto the topic of the medical masks, and you've hinted at some of the different processes or, or kind of, you know, how you decompose. What are we looking at in the tree there? Um, so briefly kind of take us through, and I've seen pictures of, of the, uh, the pulp and paper center, I believe it is, um, and, and some of the labs where you guys make these, but take us through the process of how we would go from tree to mask. So if you think about the process of making a coffee filter, it's something similar, right? So we take a tree or industry takes uh, trees in large uh, volumes, uh, produces from the trees chips, and the chips are cooked. And from that, the fibers that we talked earlier are liberated. Those fibers then are um, suspended in water, and we make paper. That's, in a, in a nutshell, how paper is made. It's a two-dimensional uh, structure, layered structure, that is uh, composed of cellulosic fibers that makes this beautiful material that we know since 2,000 years ago. <laughs> uh, there is no replacement for paper. Think about it. Paper is around us, and it has been around us, and has no replacement. It's an amazing material. Um, so if we think about the same fibers now, and um, we change a little bit the way we structure the fibers, what we try to do is to suspend them in water, put some air so that uh, we have bubbles that produce uh, spaces between the fibers. And as we uh, dewater the system, then the fibers find each other and make this uh, structure that now looks more like a membrane or like a filter that is highly permeable, highly porous. So the way we make these masks is uh, by using pretty much uh, paper-making technologies, but we spice up the technology by injecting air, and then some of these uh, nanocelluloses or nanofibers that I mentioned before. That combination makes a system or um, a paper-like material that is highly porous, where we can breathe, has a high air permeability, but at the same time, is able to stop the virus particles because of the composition of the material. So it's a very interesting combination. Sounds very simple. But if you think about the technology that is behind it, uh, really it contains different uh, aspects of uh, engineering, chemistry, and physics. Again, where we are looking into colloidal chemistry, um, uh, uh, filtration processes, the watering, uh, development of hydrogen bonding so that we have a structure that is strong, and then uh, the issue of uh, transport, mass transport, permeability, and uh, the filtration efficiency that uh, we need to ensure to make a material that is safe for us to use. Now, to follow up that too, you've talked about the process of 
how you guys get the, the, the fibers to line up to have kind of like a permeable membrane. Um, for someone who isn't familiar with the idea of permeability and membranes, what generally makes something a good filter, right? Is it just the size of the holes and how do you kind of control for that? Yeah, that's, that's of course, a, a very important question. And uh, that's the porosity. So how the fibers are assembled together so that we have uh, enough air spaces that is low density, lightweight uh, materials. And, and it's very interesting because one way to indirectly measure that is by uh, looking at light scattering. Whether a paper is more opaque or much more transparent depends on the porosity. And that porosity has to do also with or affects the interactions with light. So in a nutshell, what we want to have is a, 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 a fiber structure that is porous enough to allow for air to uh, pass through, to be permeable. But it, it shouldn't be uh, um, uh, so permeable that then uh, everything passes through. So there is this really very delicate balance between the filtration efficiency and the pressure drop. And that would be the master sort of uh, variables that we need to think when it comes to, to filtration, uh, uh, materials for filtration like math. Uh, these plots where we think about the quality of the material in this uh, bi-dimensional space where we measure, again, filtration efficiency and pressure drop. And there is no really a uh, uh, silver bullet to, to get that combination right. That requires a lot of uh, trial and error and, and, and to put uh, this to work in the right process. We know of different types of masks that we can make with fabrics. Uh, of course, the ones with polypropylene are very well established, very well known. And, and But they, they follow, to, to some extent, similar processes. Uh, as uh, laying down fibers, but in this case, polypropylene fibers that are much longer. And depending on how we process the material, then we can create those uh, spaces, those open spaces that are the ones that are needed. Then when, when we think about the filtration itself, the, the way we control uh, that process is also dependent on the fiber thickness. And also the fact that we can um, use very sophisticated processes to charge, electrically charge the fibers, and that makes the so-called electret medium. So electret is very important because uh, that means that we have electrostatic charge that um, is able to trap the particles that are uh, with very small sizes and that, that are very difficult to remove unless you have electrostatic interaction. And, and that comes to the fact that uh, many of these materials that we use based on polypropylene are charged, uh, the so-called electret uh, medium. For um, the masks that are produced from fibers, this is a challenge. And that challenge we, we try to work out by this combination of large fibers with large diameter with very fine fibers. That combination is the one that allows us to get to a filtration efficiency that competes at least uh, with those uh, for polypropylene in the case of a surgical mask. I, I like how you brought that up and that kind of leads me perfectly into my next question was when people are looking at an alternative or a new product, um, in this case a renewable one, um, they want to look at some of the benefits and trade-offs. What do you see as being some of the major limitations in either the, kind of the production or performance of, of these paper masks in comparison to what we're using now 
Um, and if, if that's kind of the major challenge, then we've already covered it. But are there, are there other ones that uh, you yourself are kind of considering in this process or some of the end users should be considering as well? Right. So for if we think about the business proposal, not only the, the aspects that we have talked about related to performance, but the business aspect is critically important because nothing is going to happen if there is not the right uh, business structure, right? The cost structure that should be competitive. We have to have the right performance with these materials that we think about using to replace uh, typical plastic. So that combination is uh, critically important. So cost structure, performance, and environmental impact. That's the mix that we need to consider. Now, what are the obstacles or the limitations for bio-based materials? I would say that there are several, and these are important for us to, to think about so that we address them as we go to the future bioeconomy. Uh, one is uh, uh, challenges in entering the marketplace. You know, again, we're addicted to what we have nowadays. We're addicted to plastics, and to displace plastics is not an easy uh, proposition because all the processes are optimized for plastics. Then there is a cost of biomass. Uh, here, once again, uh, oil, fossil carbon is relatively uh, inexpensive, and therefore uh, it's, it's difficult to, to, to replace those materials that can be produced in a pretty much uniform way, uh, let's say with a very uniform quality and, and with a low cost. So that's a challenge. Biomass can be uh, perhaps in the in the whole scheme of things relatively more expensive, uh, uh, but there are many angles to that. And and one of those is the possibility of uh, using waste material. And this is super important. The utilization in a fully circular economy where the waste is also used. Um, so that, that's one thing. Then the the compliance with regulation. Regulations is important. Um, and also the quality of biomass, there is a lot of variability, right? It's, it's a natural material, and therefore, depending on the source that you use, whether the tree species you, you have or the, the age of the tree, just to put an example, or in general, the source, uh, that will affect the fiber quality and fiber properties. And that variability, we need to learn to cope with. Uh, this is inherent to nature. So we need to cope with it. We need to work it out with nature because that's what nature gives us. So I, I would say that these are the most important challenges, but uh, on the flip side, on the, other, on the other hand, the opportunities are really very clear as far as uh, sustainability that we, we talk about and the environmental impact. There is no other way. There is no other way but to consider bioresources uh, in, in this uh, future that we want to have for our society. Now you bring up a really good point that I've kind of always wondered about um, different biomaterial products is is that competitive nature, right? In, in a world where we're, we're consuming, we're buying, um, what, what's your what's your projection into the future? Do you think, um, you know, Canada, let's say, is kind of, you know, in a position to be able to be a leader in, in, in driving that market towards sustainability? Do you think the technology and the processes we have are, are ready? And, and, and if not, kind of how far in the future? How do you see this playing out um, in kind of a marketplace sense? 
so this is already something that is uh, ongoing. Um, we talk in this area of uh, biorefineries. So uh, saying that, that we think about um, uh, petroleum, petrochemical refineries, uh, we like to refer to biorefineries, where biomass is used in a very integral way, in a very closed-loop system, and every, as I said earlier, every molecule of plants or the biomass is used. And those biorefineries are, are popping up around us. So if I put back the, the example of our Nordic countries like in Finland, there are huge investments in the, in the biorefinery sector. Here in Canada as well, uh, as we look into clean, clean tech and, and the use of agricultural resources and forest resources, uh, the concept of biorefineries will become more and more important. And essentially the idea here is that we have uh, a unit that uh, produces large volume of a material like wood uh, pulp or paper, for instance. But then there are many other byproducts that can be utilized to generate uh, monomers for chemicals, fuels, or materials. And, and uh, this is uh, the idea of full integration of, uh, of uh, the forest resource to produce um, many of the materials that we need today. And that involves construction, uh, but also, for instance, uh, textile materials. And textile is an important example. So um, many of our textiles are based on polyester uh, and also cotton. Cotton is another cellulose uh, uh, resource, but it's from an agricultural crop. And, and nevertheless, the issue with cotton is uh, that it consumes uh, a lot of water. Uh, and also in, in, in the growing of those uh, plantations, uh, there is a huge consumption in pesticides, uh, biocides. They are not too good. Therefore, uh, one proposition that comes along is the idea of using wood to produce the textiles of the future. And this is really taken up a, a very strong hold in, in, in different investments around the world. So if we think about construction, textiles, uh, single-use plastics, and, um, and you know all the materials that we started at the beginning that are around us, essentially all of them can be replaced by plant-based uh, resources. Excellent. Now, I kind of wanted to end the podcast on a bit of an observation that I've made um, and just get your opinion on it. So when when hearing about environmental issues in the media, whether it be traditional cable news, newspapers, or even social media, I find that the tone of the conversations tend to paint quite a grim picture of, of what our future will look like. Um, and, and one observation from a scholar, Stephen Pinker, um, as he said, some of the loudest voices in the environmental discourse paint this type of what he calls romantic fatalism, loosely meaning that the, pro the human progress will almost always be at odds with the health of our planet. And a more constructive alternative to this view is, is one of harmony and one that showcases our ability to create new and sustainable ways to flourish alongside our planet. So my question is, do you agree or disagree with that observation? And do you think Canada can be a leader in promoting innovations that will allow us to create that sustainable future? Uh, I, I like my more the I like more the the view of uh, of uh, humanity in harmony with uh, nature and the environment. In fact, we're part of the 
we're part of nature. We're part of the whole cycle, right? And and it's a um, in a way uh, a close uh, a circular system where everything is regenerated. Think about the planet. In in the the planet is from the material's point of view is 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 a is a closed system. From the material's point of view, from the energy point of view, it's it's a different thing. We we receive uh, so, uh, solar energy, right? So there is an open system. But from the material point of view, we are part of nature, and whatever we do in the biosphere can be utilized and regenerated. So that concept of living in harmony, I think, is is a, is a, a real one, and it's an opportunity. Uh, I, I think uh, the case of the use of the forest uh, available around us, I think, is is a beautiful example of that uh, full circle. And, and circular system uh, where we can really live in harmony with nature, uh, producing a positive environmental impact and producing the, the things that we need to, be, to, to better the quality of our lives. So I, I prefer to think uh, about us uh, in harmony with the environment, and that includes, again, all the bioresources around us. As far as what uh, the position of Canada is, this is, of course, a very important uh, question, and, and it's one of, of my missions here in, in UBC. And it's the fact that the experience that we have collected in, in other countries, uh, I referred earlier to the case of uh, Finland and Sweden. I think these are very good examples that, that together with Canada, uh, can help to incentivize uh, the concept that uh, we discussed today. And, and we have an initiative called the Boreal Alliance. This idea of using the boreal belt with the biomass and bioresources that are in this area of the planet so that we can advance the future bioeconomy. And I think uh, these countries, and especially Canada, can uh, be in a leading position to, to drive this change. And this really implies a paradigm shift. Uh, in the use of the resources, and to that 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 shift in the way we use materials can come also with a market incentive, a market proposition that can be quite quite useful uh, for us to to grow as a society. So the, the main concept here is to valorize the assets, the intelligence of nature, so that we can use them to uh, produce materials that that will replace or will be completely different solutions to what we know today. And, and that, that's the, the example of uh, the replacement for plastic that we took earlier. But go beyond that can also include aspects related to bioenergy and, and advanced materials. And I can give you, and that would be my favorite topic, I can give you many examples of uh, bioproducts that are quite advanced um, and they are all uh, bio-based. And that goes from energy harvesting devices, uh, wearables, and many other examples in the area of photonic materials. Beautiful examples also in biomedical, biomedical engineering, um, biofabrication. Really, there are plenty of opportunities for us to use uh, uh, bioresources. Fantastic. And I love how you hit on that too, because, um, you know, I think we should end on that. But I also want to get you back because. Um, like you said there, there are so many other ways that we could have these discussions about, uh, you know, how bioproducts can be impacting our lives. And, and I'm really fascinated by um, the, the medical implants example you gave me. So I'd love to have you come back on the show. But um, it's, it's been a, a great pleasure talking with you today. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by 
you know, new and exciting research that's, that's going on right in our own backyards. And I say backyards literally because you work with trees <laughs> and the, yes. the continued work of, of researchers like you and your team for, for pushing us toward a better future. So thanks so much for coming on and, and thanks for the work you do. My pleasure, Danny. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Now, if you want to learn more about the work that Dr. Rojas and his team are doing, um, you can find that in the podcast description, along with my contact and any references for work um, that Dr. Rojas has done. Um, we want to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out with anything, topic suggestions, comments, questions, whatever you want to know, um, we want to hear from you. Come join the Health Science Podcast community. Another community you could also go check out is the finance community over at the Fiscal Frisk. Go see Zach. Give him some love over there. As always, music by the talented Chase Drew. So for Dr. Rojas and myself, stay happy and healthy, and we will see you next time on the Health Science Podcast.